I thought I was hallucinating. I could hear this clanging. And what happened was one of the polar bears had smelt the food and had gone to one of the tents and ripped a hole and was sort of poking its head into the hole of the tent. Nabs Al-Busaidi is a London-born Omani. In 2009, he became the first Arab to walk from the coast of Antarctica to the magnetic North Pole. It took over eight weeks of traveling 20 kilometers a day in one of the most inhospitable places on Earth, a vast desert-like environment. The North Pole has no time zone. The sun rises and sets just once a year. And those who dare venture here walk on sheets of ice floating on the Arctic Ocean. As far as we know from historical records, only 359 people have ever completed this challenge. I'm Nadia Michelle, and this is TMR Thrill Seekers. There was one night we were camped together. Uh, so when I say together, there was, uh, I think, two or three teams and we decided that we were sort of close together so we all camped you know within 10 meters of each other and every night we would do our safety call at 8 p.m so everyone would set up the tent around six and set up their food and cook and eat and then call in their gps position then go to sleep i would stay up and i'd have to stay up until like midnight so I could make my phone call to Oman to do my radio interview every day with the radio station. It's getting really late. I'm, I think I must be the only one awake. And I hear clanging. So one of the ways to get rid of a polar bear, if a polar bear comes, is to bang metal pots together and scare them away. Because sound actually disturbs them quite a lot. Because it's, it's a very, um, there's no unnatural noises in the North Pole. So if you make a, a weird noise, it scares the polar bears. They're only used to wind or ice breaking. They never really hear anything anything different. So clanging pans together is one way to scare them. The people in the tent were banging their saucepans to try and scare it away. And I realized what was happening. And I knew one of the things we do is um, we have uh, shotguns. And with the shotgun, you get two types of shells. One is a slug which is a big, heavy bullet. And the other is a bear banger or a flashbang, which consists of a, it's a shotgun shell that fires about 100, 200 meters. And it makes a big firework and a big bang. So the idea is you fire it above the polar bear's head or in the direction of the polar bear and the polar bear runs away. I'm in my sleeping bag with the shotgun and I'm awake and I hear that and I think, oh, my God, there's a polar bear. I need to jump out and use the bear bang and scare it away. But the only thing is when you're in the in the pole, most of the time you have to sleep inside your sleeping bag naked. So that any sweat is wicked away by the um, the fleece lining. So you don't, you know, you don't have the ice uh, freeze on you. So I was sleeping in my sleeping bag naked. I heard the polar bear, I heard the banging, heard that, and I was I just about to jump out. And I thought, you know what? If I jump out and that polar bear doesn't get scared and I'm eaten, 
I, I'm going to be found naked with just a pair of boots on and a shotgun in my hand. I, I think I'll just, I think I'm just going to lie in, in bed and just hope it walks away. <laughs> in the end, the noise scared the bear away and Nabs was spared the embarrassment of being found dead and naked in the snow. But how Nabs ended up in that tent in the first place goes back to what he calls a lightning strike moment, a chance meeting with someone he'd met on the adventure circuit. It was a bit of a lightning bolt moment because I was sitting at lunch in a restaurant and there was a guy nearby who I knew from the Roadrunners, so the, the, a cross-country uh, running club. And um, he was talking about climbing Everest and he was seriously talking about it. And he said, you know, I'd, he'd been the year before and he wanted to go back and attempt the summit and would I be interested in going with him because he's looking for a partner? And immediately I dismissed it. I said, oh, yeah, no, I'm just here for lunch, thanks. I might take dessert. I'm not going to Everest, you know. (laughs) And the switch is this. I asked my friend about climbing Everest. And he said, yeah, yeah, you could climb Everest, but 4,000 people have done Everest. Only 400 people have ever walked to a pole. And if you go to the North Pole, you'll be the first Arab to walk to, an, uh, to a pole. If you, if you climb Everest, you'll be one of 4,000, and you'll be, you won't be the first Arab. You'll be one of many that have uh, already done it. Uh, it's sort of mentally, I wasn't totally convinced. But the thing that he said was, if you have a record, you're the fastest 100 meters runner. Next year, someone will come and break your record. So right now, we know who the uh, Usain Bolt is the fastest 100-meter runner. But who was the fastest 100-meter runner 10 years ago? I don't know. Who was the fastest 100-meter runner uh, 30 years ago? No idea. Couldn't even guess. So as long as you have a record like the fastest or the oldest or youngest or strongest or highest or lowest. If you have any one of those records, somebody will come and break your record. But if you're the first person to walk on the moon, you'll always be the first person to walk on the moon. And people will always know Neil Armstrong. But they won't know who the third person was. Who was the last person to walk on the moon? I couldn't tell you. But you know who the first is. So... If you're going to go for a record, try and be the first because you'll always hold that record. Braving freezing temperatures and extreme conditions takes serious motivation. In Nab's case, bragging rights were a powerful incentive. So it's not the walking that I wanted to do. And I guess this is a key distinction. It's not the walking that I wanted to do. I didn't want to walk to the North Pole. I wanted to say that I'd walked to the North Pole. I wanted to be able to claim that I'd done it. So it was the goal, the achievement was was what I wanted. I didn't want to actually suffer through the whole uh, process. But of course, to achieve anything significant, you have to do something significant because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and they wouldn't be significant. So you have to do something uh, very difficult or hard to achieve something special. That's actually not the whole story. Nabs also became an adventurer with the lofty goal of trying to create a more positive image of Arabs and Muslims in the media. Most of my life I've lived in the UK and whenever you hear on the news 
the word Islamic, it's always followed by fundamentalist, Islamic terrorist, Islamic terror cell, Islamic. You never hear anything positive to do with Muslims or Arabs or so I thought, well, hopefully if I can do this and 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 create a you know a lot of media buzz, then hopefully it'll be the you know be something where the media actually says something positive about Arabs or Muslims, right? First Arab not to blow something up, you know, something anything, but at least it would be something positive for once. He didn't blow anything up. But he definitely felt firsthand the negative effects of stereotypes and racial profiling, even in 2011, 10 years after the attacks on the Twin Towers on 9-11. I think I've been uh, arrested or detained in every single country I've visited since 9-11. <laughs> When we rode across the Atlantic, the part of the we're in a, we're in a boat and the, we needed to keep the boat as light as possible. So we rode across with only five kilograms of personal, you know, shorts and, you know, absolute bare minimum. So when we got to the other side, I had like seven, eight, nine weeks of beard on my face. Um, anyway, we turned up to um, Barbados having rode and I hadn't shaved in, uh, you know, several weeks, several months even. And um, from Barbados, I flew to... Um, to the States, uh, I was going to stay with a, uh, a US, of all things, I was going to stay with a US Navy captain who was a friend of mine who was who lived near Washington, DC. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I find it kind of ironic because I arrived at the airport, he was there to pick me up and um, I got detained by the, by immigration <laughs> because they were looking at my passport where I'm clean shaven and they were looking at me with my massive beard And they thought, you know, th these guys in TSA just thought, we've hit the jackpot. We've caught Al-Qaeda. <laughs> He's just walked into our, into our laps. Um, they detained me on possession of a suspicious beard. And they held me in this sort of holding area with about 100 people. And they kept me to the last. They processed everyone they gave everyone you know secondary screening but they left me to last and I'm going to add this in because I think this is also ridiculously hilarious there was a, a lady sat next to me with a little kid and I thought that's odd why why would I mean I, I can understand why they're detaining me you know they, they want to allay their suspicions allay their fears fine got no problem with it But this lady with the, and she was about, I don't know, let's say she was late 20s, early 30s with a little five-year-old kid. Uh, so I said to her, you know, why have you been detained? And she said, oh, because um, uh, my son's name is Pablo Escobar or whatever it was, and he's a wanted drug dealer. <laughs> and he's on this sort of list for the DEA. And I said, but didn't they notice that he was five years old? <laughs> he can't be the drug dealer they're looking for. And she just sort of shrugged her shoulders and went, okay, fair enough. So anyway, um, when they finally processed everyone, I noticed that the whole room filled up with all these TSA agents. It was like a, a gladiator sport. They'd all come to watch the gladiator being slayed, right? And uh, the boss came out. He sat down at the desk, set his whole computer and got everything ready. Then he called me over and I sat down and he goes, so why have you been uh, detained? And I said, well, because I've got the beard and why have you got the beard? Well, I just rode across the Atlantic. Would you, 
I said, would, would you believe I just rode across the Atlantic? And he said, no. And I pointed at my T-shirt, which I was wearing, which said www.atlanticrowing.com. And he went to his computer, typed it in, and there was a news article, thankfully, uh, about us in the UK, about how, you know, I, I was one of the first to, you know, row across the Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. He looked at this news article from the Daily Mail. He saw that and he went, wow, you really did. Okay, you can go now. And I was released. <laughs> that ambitious rowing expedition was NAB's second claim to fame after walking to the poles. In 2011, it took him and his team 43 days, or seven weeks, to row 4,600 kilometers across the Atlantic, from the Canary Islands to Barbados. Okay, so what you have to remember is there's no day, it's shifts. So we would row for two hours, then we'd be off for two hours. And you're off hours, you're so exhausted, you just climb in the cabin, you fall asleep. There's no time for anything else. So you row two hours, you sleep two hours. You row two hours, sleep two hours. And so almost <laughs> there are six days in every day because <laughs> there's six times you have to wake up and start rowing. So a typical shift would be you'd get a 10-minute warning they'd knock on the cabin and say 10 minute warning and you sort of start to stir five minute warning and you have to start getting, you know, getting ready to move out of the cabin and then change. You come out of the cabin. And when I say cabin, it's, it's a, it's a watertight cabin with a very small one meter hatch. So you have to climb out the hatch and then you swap with somebody who's already rowing. And that guy who's rowing goes into the cabin so you've also got to remember you've got to balance the boat so one guy comes out one guy goes in one guy comes out one guy goes in so you do this sort of ballet dance where everyone's swapping positions and then after about five minutes of doing that the whole shift has changed and you start rowing and so you row for your two-hour shift during that two-hour shift uh, you need to eat and drink. So one person from that shift will be designated to boil water and then cook. I say cook. Add the boiling water to the dehydrated food and mix it. <laughs> so that's cooking. And then hand those out. And everyone gets a five, ten minutes to eat their food. Everyone gets a water bottle with uh, uh, drinking water with, you know, tang or whatever additive. And um, yeah, and that's um, that's it. <laughs> two hour, two hours of rowing, and then two hours. So there wasn't much going on except rowing. But I, I, it sounds boring. But the great thing about our shift was we all had a very similar sense of humour. So we actually had quite a good laugh together, and it kept morale up. So it was it was painfully miserable rowing but it was we were always laughing and having a joke together so it was it was actually quite a kind of fun you know if you ask me which was the hardest expedition by far rowing across the Atlantic is by far the hardest thing I've ever done and uh, walking to the North Pole is sort of number two and a very very distant three would be Everest it's it's difficult to compare apples to apples but then or apples to pears or, or apples to oranges. But 
the mathematics of it is on Everest, on a long day, you'd do maybe four hours climbing, not on a summit day. Summit day is obviously a very long day, but most days you only limit yourself to, um, you know, you don't want to ascend too many meters in a day because you see so you can acclimatize. So you don't really work in terms of time. You may do four hours, six hours walking, climbing. On the North Pole, you might do eight to 10 hours of walking. But on the, uh, on the Atlantic, you're doing 12 hours rowing. So if you just take it by mathematics, would you rather do four hours or 12 hours? Nabs attempted to climb Mount Everest in 2010, the year before he rode across the ocean. But his plan to reach the top of the world's highest mountain went downhill. What you normally do when you're, well, what you do when you're climbing Everest is you go to base camp, you sort of acclimatize there for a while, and then you start climbing up and down to camp one, back down, camp two, back down. And so for, for variety, we were climbing a different mountain nearby called Lobache, which is at 6,200 meters. And we were just, you know, we were actually climbing up and down, up and down this mountain to the equivalent of camp two on Everest and acclimatizing. So the first, you know, first day we went up and we came straight back down. The second time we went up, we stayed one night, we came back down. And each time we would stay longer at altitude and get used to the uh, thinner air. And the last training run, we'd stayed two nights up top and it was quite bad. We were, we were coughing um, quite a lot. And so you can, you, it's called the kumbu cough. You end up coughing so much that you can end up breaking your ribs from coughing. And it's to do with the uh, the altitude and it's to do with the desiccation of the lining of your um, esophagus. So every, every time you breathe in, because it's so cold, eventually you start to dry up and, and kill off the lining of your of your your uh, windpipe and those flakes of skin end up irritating you and you end up coughing 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 and then you get infection in the lung which makes you cough and so we were having a terrible time on the uh, at 6200 meters and uh, that was our last training run we were going to come down and try and recover before we were going off to Everest and actually attempting a summit and um, as we were coming down it was it was sort of late in the day, around eleven o'clock in the morning, and the sun was high and the ice was melting. And I was walking down, and I stood on a bit of ice. It broke. I fell, and I, I didn't fall far. But actually, what happened was, I fell. It's as if I was on a step. So step isn't particularly high, but if you roll your ankle and you fall, that distance of I don't know half a foot, a foot fall. 12 inches you fall and you land on your ankle the wrong way you break your ankle but what happened was I didn't just break my ankle I I broke my left one one way and then that ice broke and then I fell on my right ankle and broke it one way and then the ice broke and I fell again and landed on my ankle the other way so I broke my right ankle twice both ways left ways and right ways and then I broke my my right uh, my left ankle as well so I sort of did it three ways you know and then, uh, yeah, so that was the end of Everest for me. No more, no more walking. He planned on returning to Everest the following season, but his injury was worse than he thought. 
I knew it was done for that year, at least for that climbing season. And I was disappointed because I'd been working towards it for, you know, I, I told you about every morning training, I would run up a hundred flights of stairs. So I was actually not kidding when I was talking about hundred flights of stairs. The building I lived in was a 10 story building. I'd run up to the 10th floor, take the lift down, run up 10 floors, take the lift down, run up 10 floors, take the lift down. Every morning I'd run up 100 flights of stairs. So I was doing that every day. I was doing so much stuff to get ready for Everest. And then everything was snatched away in a, in a moment. And, um, and then after a while I thought, well, you know, set back. I'll just have to recover and, um, and try again next year. But what I didn't know was that both ankles were broken so badly that I couldn't walk. And um, so I had, I don't know, 20 something, I can't remember, I don't know how many procedures on my ankles to try and fix them. And I had stem cell treatment. I had artificial uh, synovial fluid injected into my ankles. I had uh, operations, uh, keyhole surgery to remove uh, bits of bone and just nothing seemed to work. And um, so I was stuck for three months in bed. And then I was stuck for two years, not being able to walk for more than two minutes. And and actually, the uh, the whole process is very depressing. So, going from super active to being bedridden is one thing, and then being in constant pain is another. But then I went to America and had stem cell treatment, and. Um, four weeks after the stem cell treatment, I was able to walk for about 10 hours. So the stem cell treatment made a massive difference in my ability to A, a my sort of mobility, but also the pain. It reduced the pain to almost, uh, almost zero. Ultimately, his achievements and story didn't make many headlines in the Western media, and his plan to reshape the Arab narrative didn't quite come to fruition. But he became quite the hero in his native country, especially while he was in the pool where he scored a major point for all Arabs on behalf of Oman. In Oman, where I'm originally from, it was blanket coverage. I had full coverage every day in the Arabic newspapers and the uh, English newspapers every single day. And on the, um, on the radio FM station, every morning during drive time, there was a radio update. So I'd be calling from a satellite phone. I'd do a short interview. They would edit it and they would play on in, during rush hour. So every morning during rush hour, all the kids and the parents and the workers going to work would hear me at the North Pole saying, you know, uh, polar bears tried to eat me. So when I came back, I just thought everything, you know, nothing had really changed for me. But I turned up in Oman and it was, it was crazy. There was like you know, hundreds of people at the airport, everywhere I went, people would recognize me, you know, and then I'd be getting asked to go to schools, but I would go to the schools and the kids would love it. And I'd show them pictures and answer questions. And, you know, I couldn't do enough school visits at the time. Oman is a small country with a population of just over 5 million. The country shares land borders with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. Oman is described as a Switzerland of the Middle East. So, as an example, people talk about all the unrest in the Middle East. And, you know, we're bordered by Saudi Arabia and Yemen 
and Iran, like hotbeds of, of uh, unrest, and yet you never hear about Oman in the uh, press. I think Oman is the only country to not have had a terrorist incident this century. It's a very, very stable and quiet and secure country. So when I say it's the Switzerland of the Middle East, you know, you'll never have heard of Oman, but these are, one of, these are some of the reasons. The other thing about Oman that everyone says is Oman is a friend to everyone. So, for example, when the Americans needed to get their hostages back, uh, not hostages, but the American citizens back from Iran, it was Oman that, that was the, 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 the intermediary. See, Oman has uh, relations with open relations with every country, I think. And I guess the other thing is uh, people say about Oman is that they are very friendly. A couple of years ago, there was a Spartan race in Oman. It was the first Spartan race in Oman. And Spartan, I guess you must have heard of Spartan races. They contacted me and asked me to be one of the ambassadors for the race. And I said, I'd love to, but, you know, I'm in no physical shape to do it anymore because of my ankles and I'm now fit and fat and old and whatever. And they, they gave me a personal trainer for, I don't know, two months beforehand, every morning getting me ready for this uh, event. Anyway, just before the event, my, the trainer and I, we went out to this um, Spartan race location and we went over the obstacles so that I was ready for the actual race. So just, I wasn't expecting to win or whatever. I was just expecting to uh, inspire everyone by my presence and, you know, lead the way and show people that, you know, you know, NABS is doing it. So as we were doing the, uh, doing, going through it, um, on the way back, my car engine radiator blew up and we broke down by the side of the road. And uh, we couldn't we couldn't drive the car. We were stuck in the middle of nowhere. And this this uh, location was the other side of the mountain range. So we were stuck completely on the wrong side of town from all the garages and everything. We was just in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, this car passes by, stops, and this Omani guy comes out. And he just says, Rand, <laughs> to be honest, I was so irritable at that time. He comes out and he goes, hi, is there something wrong with your car? And I was about to snap back at him, go, <laughs> just, just say something really sarcastic, like, you know, why the hell do you think we stopped? It's not because the car's working, is it? Anyway, uh, I looked at this guy and he looked like he had a nice face and he was trying to be helpful. And I just sort of bit my tongue and tried to curb my, my frustration. And I just said, you know, the car's broken down and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, Anyway, to cut a story, longer story, slightly shorter, this guy basically said, here, take my car, and he gave me the keys, and he said, I will fix it, come back tomorrow. And um, I was like, oh, I can't take your car. It, that's ridiculous. I don't even know you. And he was like, no, no, take my car. Just uh, It's okay. And then I, he kept on insisting. And, and after a while, I said to the guy, you don't even know my name. You don't have my phone number. You don't have, you know, I could run away with your car. You have no idea who I am. He says, it's not a problem. I'm sure you'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> so, anyway, so the next day is, was actually the day of the race. So um, I came back the next day and I was trying to call him and he wasn't picking up. And I had his car and I was feeling so embarrassed because I had this guy's car and now I had my car, it had been, it had been fixed. 
so I had two cars and this guy didn't have his car. And I was calling him and calling him. And I was like, God, I'm going to have to leave. He's going to think I stole his car. Anyway, it turned out he'd been at the mosque praying. And uh, eventually he came out, answered my phone call. We went round to his house. We had lunch with him. And, and every time now he comes to town, he'll give me a ring and we'll go for lunch. Initial thing. The initial thing is so crazy. Random stranger just comes up and gives you his car. That would never happen in England. I suppose that's an extreme example, but I think that's um, basically what Oman used to be like. And um, I think, uh, you know, with civilized, I say civilization, with, you know, the, the way things have been going in Oman, there's, we're losing that a bit. But in general, the guys here, the people here are just ridiculously friendly. It's, they're so friendly, it's freaky. It's like um, people think there must be an ulterior motive, you know? Nabs is now a consultant who travels around the world to places like South Africa, doing what he calls troubleshooting for companies looking to grow. His extreme adventuring days are mostly behind him, but the mindset is still on. If you aren't singularly focused on achieving it, you won't. You probably won't even start. And that applies to everything. I guess even, gosh, even to maybe like even marriage, you know? There's so many things that that could apply to. If you if you're not really uh, focused on making it succeed, then it won't. If you don't have an overall vision or goal that you want to achieve, that's a, a burning goal, you will quit. Because there's absolutely look. Even if I said to you, I'll give you a million pounds to row across the Atlantic, you'll do about. Most people will do about three hours or three shifts of rowing before they give up because there's absolutely no way that that's worth a million pounds. You can't, money is not going to do it for you. External motivations is not going to do it for you. I think if you have constant doubts about wanting to give up, you will end up giving up because there's there's too much internal discord in your psycho in your in your mind you're fighting constantly between i want to do this i want to give up i want to do this i want to give up eventually i want to give up yet yeah, i'm going to give up eventually you're going to say i want to give up so you have to be 100% focused and and to do that before i went this navy seal told me this a uh, bit of advice it's not enough to have one burning goal sometimes you need you need carrots and sticks and you need lots of them lined up and what what he means by that is I need to think about, I want to be the first Arab. I want to be at the North Pole in my traditional outfit and have a photograph of me standing at the North Pole. I want to come home as a success. I want to, so you have all these carrots and you're, each step you're taking, which will be the hardest step you've ever taken in your life, you need another reason to keep going. But there also has to be sticks sometimes. If I give up, I will not raise any money for charity. If I give up, all those kids will be disappointed. If I give up, people will laugh at me. If I give up, and you're thinking, I am never going to give up because if I give up, people will laugh at me. So you need lots of reasons because that nagging voice in the back of your head saying, this is too bloody hard, I want to give up, eventually is going to overwhelm you and you will give up. Good advice. 
to know more about Nabz al-Busaidi, follow him on Instagram at ArabAdventurer or go to ArabAdventurer.com. That's also where you can buy his book. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like it and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NadiaMichelle underscore. See you soon. <laughs>